I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef. Because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. This is part one of a two-part episode. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss part two. Just follow the directions at the end to get every episode. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today on the podcast, Chris Mowat is joining us from Calgary, Alberta, Canada to talk about the dry aging process and premium beef. He will be touching on dry aging basics, highlights of using a dry age program, and the benefits of using premium beef. To give you a quick bio on Chris, he's been in the culinary and hospitality industry for 32 years and possesses a really diverse background, including meat cutting and sausage making. His career highlights include obtaining the Certified Chef de Cuisine designation and mentoring several apprentice chefs. In 2016, he joined Centennial Food Service as a member of the business development team. In his position as Premium Meats Category Manager, he works across Centennial's network of in-house butcher shops, helping customers create custom protein offerings. He's also involved in sustainability efforts with Centennial's Sterling Silver Premium Beef Program. He's a native Calgarian, still calls the city home, and he has a deep passion for all things beef. Welcome into the kitchen, Chris. Thanks, Chef Pete. Glad to be here. It's too bad we couldn't do this in person. Well, hopefully one day we will. Absolutely. Let's kick things off. Tell us about yourself and what you do today for Centennial Food Service Canada. So in the role as the category, Premium Meats Category Manager at Centennial, I basically get to play with all the cool things in the toy box. That can be anything from... Canada Prime to our dry age program to any of our premium vendors such as Sterling Silver. I also get to work a lot with our local partners and ranchers and spend a ton of time uh, working with our sales teams and our individual butcher shops across Canada as well. So anything beef related or protein related, I get to put my hands on it. So it's a pretty cool job. That sounds like a lot of fun. A little similar to what I have to do every day too. So it's, it's awesome as a chef, you know, we get to become experts in a certain area, in this case, protein, and it's great to learn and play, but also to educate and teach, because not every chef out there gets to wear that hat only all day long. There's so many other parts of their business they have to run. So you say custom protein offerings, you know, give us some examples of what that means and maybe some customers that you've, you know, you've helped them out in that area. In terms of um, Centennial's interaction and customizing or building of programs for our customers, it really tends to be very individualistic, to be honest with you. It's it's focused on what the individual chef might want to accomplish. And mm-hmm. of, of course, you know, the great thing about that is you're spending time generally in their kitchen or with their team, kind of learning a little bit about their business and then developing some of it on your own and some of it, as I say, in direct working relationship with the chef. Uh, ultimately, that addresses a concern or maybe a, a new direction that they might be taking with their menu. So it's a lot of fun, without a doubt. You talk about some of your customers and restaurants you've worked with and, and how, you know, maybe they come to you or, or you just happen to go and knock on their door. But, you know, it's about sometimes taking them in a new direction and getting them on one of these premium programs. Tell us some, you know, instances of how that all went and what they did. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, it can be 
really based on the insight that they've given you, you know, perhaps they've been on a program that, you know, their supplier hasn't, you know, maybe had the best control over in terms of age or supply chain issues or those kind of things. You know, from there, just from listening to them, you can kind of make a few offerings. And that can be something like using a dry age program to kind of change the target audience a little bit or using a different premium beef program in order to change the contribution margin on the menu. You're trying to drive more seats and repetitive seats into the restaurant. And so typically in conversations with restaurant owners and chefs, you know, you'll kind of listen to their guidance, figure out what they want on the menu or perhaps what they haven't seen and collaborate on setting up a cutting or a tasting and, and kind of go from there. And it really becomes a pretty consultive process. And, you mm-hmm. know, nine times out of 10, you end up with a really good partnership. When you listen, you can do good things. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to guess that if you're having that conversation with somebody, most likely there's a consistency issue. Uh, yeah. Something about what they've been bringing in just isn't doing it for them. I mean, sometimes, hey, you, you maybe competition moved in down the street and you need to reinvent yourself a little bit. But it's probably because they're not happy with their current program. And again, you know, having a program per se, because not everybody's on one, but buying, you know, whether it's Sterling or say your dry age program, something like that, where there is a process that allows that meat to be in that box. And that's where consistency rules. And as a restaurateur, you know, that's how you get people back in that same seat is knowing that they're going to have that same consistent steak that they enjoyed last time. You know, whether it's wet aged or dry aged, it doesn't matter. It's just, I really love that. And I thought about it for the last week. So now I'm back again to have it. And it becomes my love because I love the way you make it. Ultimately, it's about giving the chef or that business operator control and input Mm -hmm. into what they're doing. The way that I like to phrase it when I'm talking to customers, rather to chef or owners, I like to say, people like a $10 steak sandwich, but people love a steak sandwich that's a 10 out of 10. And there's a big difference there. And that comes from listening and caring about what you're doing and when you're interacting with your customers on that level, most of the time you're going to nail their goals down for them. It's a great way to look at it. You're getting right in there. You're cooking with the chef. You're talking with him face to face. There's not someone in between the two of you, right? So you're getting to understand, is there something that needs to be corrected, like you said, or is it they have a vision and you're helping them bring that vision to life? Something that sets them apart or just it's part of their philosophy. They want X on the menu. And it's not something that they can necessarily make happen by themselves. But with a partner like yourself, probably makes you have to go back and and do a lot of homework and kitchen work, which is amazing, right? We love that. You have to have that passion, passion to help people and also passion for food to do well at that job. So where do you get that passion from? You know, in all honesty, I think if you, and I think it's more like this for most chefs, if you look back at some of the um, the memories that you're most fond of throughout your mm-hmm. life, you know, a, a lot of them tend to take place around the dinner table. You know, of course, we've all got that story about the, you know, the time that the memory around <laughs> the dinner table wasn't that great. Um, <laughs> but really, that's where it starts, right, is, yeah. is really enjoying that time. And I think in in the position that we find ourselves in, in the food service industry, we're in a privileged position because quite often 
chefs and customers are, are happy to see the meat guy. It would be very rare for me to walk into somebody's restaurant or kitchen and, and them not be happy to see me because they typically know that I'm going to bring something cool and interesting out of the toy box. Mm-hmm. And we're typically going to break bread or, or something, you know, along those lines together, right? So it really comes down to having a passion for influencing their goals and their desires. Sure. I think that's right. Yeah, the way you said it, we all we all look back to just sitting around a table and enjoying family, company, the food that we eat, whether it was good or not. You know, it just creates and sparks that fire and that passion. But then just seeing it grow and, and being able to do something that you're passionate about. Like you said, walking into the back of the house as, as the meat guy, the protein guy, yeah, you don't get turned away as much as someone else might, so... Nobody ever says, take your steaks and go elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you're, you're bringing premium program uh, items to the table, right? There's no right. doubt. They're, right, they're exactly. probably calling and going, hey, Chris, when are you coming back? <laughs> you, can you come back next Monday, you know? Yeah, we've got a few of those. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. So let's think about premium programs. And one of the reasons why uh, I reached out to have this conversation is, you know, you guys have a really cool dry aging program. You offer stuff up that, you know, not everybody can do dry aging in the back of the house in their own restaurant. So you offer that up. So I'd love for you to touch on what dry aging is and the benefits of it. And just, you know, in general, what you as a chef love about it. And, you know, maybe what some of your customers uh, rely on you for in a program like that. Right. So it, when we started taking a look at different ways that we could bring something, you know, back to the market, something that would be unique and interesting for, for customers, for us, dry aging was kind of an obvious gap in the marketplace at the time. And the one thing that we knew we wanted to do was to make sure that we were offering kind of a best in class, if you will, program. And so it actually took us the better part of two years to develop the whole program. And, you know, that included things like going to different cities across Canada and, and across the United States and talking with different chefs. And, you know, we were very fortunate to have our team, you know, be welcome to poke and prod in, in different places and different coolers all over Canada and the United States. And so we built our dry gene coolers, or our dry gene room from the point of view that we had to have best in class in what we mm-hmm. were doing. And, you know, because of course, it, there are some pitfalls to dry aging if you don't do it properly as well, right? In sure. order to get a premium program out of a dry age room or a dry age cooler, you've got to put a premium product in and it's got to have the food safety to go with it as well, right? So um, we always just focused on the end user and, and wanting that experience to be great for them. And it kind of guided us through the process, to be honest with you. That's just the way we should have I guess, attack everything, right? You know, with those goals in mind, that thought process in mind, food safety. And for my customer, it's so important that we do every step right. So you have to start there and you have to end there. So the science behind it, you know, let's dig into that a little bit. You know, you got wet aging and then dry aging. What are some of these differences that someone who might not be on on a dry age program today would get an understanding of? Right. So, your typical restaurant these days will probably be on a wet age program and typically would see that done in a cryovac bag. And, you know, there's lots of different distributors or ranchers or farmers that would have, you know, their own unique aging profiles. And and sometimes that trickles down into the operation itself. You know, maybe they'll advertise something unique or special on their menu. Uh, That's a wet age program and it never comes out of the bag. 
when it does come out of the bag, of course, the enzymatic process uh, tends to slow down, almost cease, if you will. And that's that breaking down of proteins and amino acids. And that's kind of how wet aging works. Dry aging is a, it's, it's a little bit different from wet aging in the fact that you're, you're accomplishing a few different things. The enzymatic process is still allowing for the proteins and the amino acids to be broken down and, you know, slightly tenderizing uh, the meat, but that's not really the goal with a dry aging program. Typically, what you'll find is that you're actually after condensing the flavors. You know, so if you'll take something like a a 35-day wet-aged piece of ribeye versus a 35-day dry-aged piece of ribeye, you notice quite a difference in taste. And then mm-hmm. as you start to get up into the, you know, the 45s or the 55s or, you know, the 100-day type stuff, you'll notice that the flavor is drastically different than a wet age. And then, of course, the other thing is as those loins give up their moisture, they condense in terms of width and length. They contract. And so you're cutting a a smaller steak in terms of the weight of the steak that's actually significantly thicker in most cases anyways. So those are just a few of the things that, um, that we consider. And then there are some parts around the way that you would run your dry age program in terms of the optimum temperature and the airflow and the moisture that you put into that cooler or room. Um, those are a few other things that we're, we're constantly monitoring and checking, you know, several times a day. So when I think about how you're describing that, I mean, yes, you got moisture loss. I mean, I, I try to relate that to, you know, you got a, a gallon stock you just made. And it's got some flavor, but then you reduce it down by half and it gets more flavor, right? So the moisture is leaving, which then concentrates all those flavors. Exactly. And ultimately, the more you reduce it, the stronger the flavor is going to get. I'm assuming, you know, your your dry age rooms are probably pretty big. So, I mean, this isn't just an overnight process. So you have product that whatever the spec is for that customer, if it's 40 days, 100 days, whatever, everybody's got their end flavor in mind. And and ultimately, you're probably going to get close to that each time around if the steps are followed. But you have many different programs, I guess, to manage because you're putting in beef today that's not going to be ready for, say, 50 days. Well, the restaurant's not waiting 50 days for that because they need it today, <laughs> right? They need it tomorrow. They need it the day after that. So there's got to be, I think of it like prosciutto and things like that, right? You got to plan. Right. There's a lot of planning that goes into that whole process. So it's not as easy as, say, a wet age program would be. No, that's for sure. So what would be a reason why a restaurant would maybe decide, you know what? I'm going to stick with wet age. I have no interest. And let's think higher end because you don't see a lot of dry age beef in, you know, mid-scale restaurants. I mean, you could, but it's just is a price tag that goes along with that. So, but from your experience, that chef, that owner of that restaurant, what's going through their mind? Why go dry aged or why go wet age only and not decide to go dry age? Well, typically what we do see is we see that combo approach where you're right. I mean, you'll have you know, a certain percentage of the menu that'll be wet age and then a certain percent of the menu that might be dry age or they might be running them for a feature or have some sort of a, a, a rotating dry age rancher's plate or something focused around that. Typically what we find and, you know, kind of what we explain to people is that this is an experience. 
This is, this is not your average steak that you can walk into your average steakhouse and have on a nightly basis. It does involve some pre-planning, as we said, but it's, it, this is what turns your, your menu into a destination. People mm-hmm. will come for this. It's got a following. And this is really for the, the restaurant owners or the chefs that, that want to offer something different to their customers. And in terms of the pricing parameters, there's lots of different ways to buy it and age it. And, you know, so being able to have that flexibility and work directly with the chef or the restaurant owner to accomplish those goals without breaking the bank or, you know, scaring the daylights out of the customer walking in the door, it's all doable. It literally Mm -hmm. just comes down to spending time with your customers. And as I say, keeping their customers in mind. I was thinking as you were talking about, there's so many different ways people dry age, right? And, you know, you wet age it for this many days, then you dry age it for this many. And again, it comes down to what do you want that final product to be, right? So there's a lot of testing and and trial and maybe you don't have to do it all because someone else did a bunch of it and you've got other ideas. You know, what's that perfect match, you know, or people taking it off the hoof, as they say, and, and putting it in a dry ager right away, I'm sure there are, but not that many as, as opposed to some wet age. And um, But I have a question, and I don't know the answer is, are there those out there that will manage a program and, and maybe wet age it to a certain spot and then freeze it and then manage it that way? No, t- typically, they, if you're going to do um, a dry age program, what you'll want to do is you'll want to bring the product in to where it's going to be dry aged. You could definitely wet age it for a certain amount of time and then put it right into the dry age room, achieve your combo age, whatever that magic number happens to be. And, and as you alluded to, it's all over the map. It's all very customer driven. Sure. The thing that you would want to avoid is wet aging and then freezing and then slacking and then dry aging. And the reason for that, honestly, is because the enzymatic process ceases when the beef is frozen. That product no longer breaks down. Mm-hmm. When the product is then thawed out or tempered, really what you're encountering is you're not encountering an enzymatic breakdown or tenderization. You're starting to encounter the product actually slowly losing shelf life. Uh, okay. So what you would want to do is you would want to wet age it, keep it fresh, into the dry age room fresh. And then if you wanted to freeze it afterwards. Afterwards, okay. Yeah, that's no problem at all. We've done that for a few customers. And of course, that helps to further nail down those economic parameters. Mm -hmm. You're buying that raw material at the low of the market. You're putting whatever the desired profile for flavor is on that product. And then you're just putting it away and, and the customer will draw as they need it. So with that, what are you talking shelf life-wise? Can you take something that, you know, it's got its dry age of 50 days on it, and do you clean it first and freeze it, or do you just leave it as is, freeze it for the next three months or whatever, and then, and then when you take it out, that's when you trim it off? What we would call that program is a layaway. Okay. Um, if somebody wanted to do that, we would encourage them to leave the loin, say, for example, a, a ribeye, whole, mm-hmm. untrimmed, frozen, and then trim it rather, you know, in their kitchen once they receive it or once it comes out of the freezer, we could trim it for them and then ship it to them. But that actual dry age bark on the outside or that, that nice crust will actually help preserve some of the moisture. In general, dry aged beef tends to freeze a lot better 
than wet aged beef just because it's given up a lot of that moisture. Okay. Yeah, you're not having all those ice crystals form inside the meat, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it kind of acts as a protectant. And um, yeah. we've done many, many tests on it where it doesn't degrade, to be honest with you. No. So if you're if you're talking about a shelf life, you can easily freeze that for a year without even worrying about it. That's great. I wasn't sure how much and how long you can freeze something like that for, but really, really interested to learn more about that and play around with it. And we're talking mainly, you know, middle meats here, because that's what you see a lot of, right? You know, I'd say strip loins and ribeyes more than anything, right? Right. Yeah, but you probably see some uh, maybe uh, fillets or bone-in fillets, things like that. Um, yeah. Outside of those three, what else do you have you played with or, or you see customers asking for in, in a dry age? You're really always trying to keep in mind, I, I guess, the, the width of the original or the size of the original muscle that's going to go in there and just kind of work with the, the amount of days you're going to put on it if it's a little bit smaller. So a really interesting conversation that I had with a chef in uh, Victoria recently was that he wanted to do a dry age top sirloin and was asking for some feedback on how we might do that. So um, what we ended up doing is splitting the coulant off the top of the top sirloin and of course, seaming out the sciatic and removing, you know, all the connective tissue around it. But we left those three logs, if you will, intact uh, with the face cuts on and Typically at Centennial, we remove that. But in the case of this particular program, it helped to protect his his yield. Sure. Right, because, you know, typically you're going to grind those off anyways. Uh, so it, it ended up working out really well. It, it's kind of an example of a a product that I originally kind of hum and hoed about. And I thought, hmm, I'm not sure how successful it would be, but it, it turned out unbelievable. Wow. So, I mean, I, I could see like a, a, a coolot being pretty darn delicious that way it has a lot of fat cover and everything on it you know once you've seen that all out it's not a lot of fat on the outside so what was what was that like it's probably much shorter aging because you're going to lose moisture quicker is that what you ended up with yeah it's pretty accurate um, okay. when we did the aging for that knowing that we were going to be putting smaller pieces into the room we wet aged that subprimal out to 45 days wet age okay. and then put it in the room for an additional 14 days. Oh, okay. And it gave it that, yeah, it gave it that beautiful crimson crust that you would expect. And then, of course, as you trim that down, it gives you the option to leave a little bit of the patina on there. Mm -hmm. The patina being not the crust itself, but that, as I say, that dark crimson color that's, you know, just underneath there. Pretty spectacular. And of course, if you put dry age beef or dry aged fat in particular on cast iron, it basically turns into a, the most wonderful looking beef fat potato chip you've ever had in your life. So <laughs> pretty spectacular. Going to have to try that one. No doubt about that. <laughs> I mean, beef fat, who doesn't like that? But as a chip, mm, yummy, <laughs> right. yummy. I, and again, I, I know we're talking beef here mainly, but, um, you know, you play around with any other proteins to dry age a little bit i mean i highly doubt we're dry aging any chicken or turkey here but you know pork veal things like that yeah actually i just finished playing around with uh pork tomahawks that were dry aged for 21 mm -hmm. days okay spectacular product and then i'm just in the process of finishing uh some dry aged veal porterhouses right now Ooh, so okay. those would be something really unique to play with and i should have those out in about a week or so and they're uh they're for a workshop um, for a local customer in Calgary here, actually. 
Nice. So like yeah. the tomahawks, you're doing that whole loin and then and then cutting the chops afterwards? You're not doing them per chop, right? No, whole loin in the case of that. And yeah. when we're doing the actual racks into the room, you know, the bones have been cleaned off of the front so that mm-hmm. the bone will take on some of that nice pink patina. But that's really about all the trimming that we do to that. And then, of course, with the veal short loins, leave them as be. Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm like really really hungry right now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of your favorite uh, cuts of meat later, but what's your favorite dry aged cut and how long? God, I think the best one that I've had so far is a dry aged hanger actually. Oh yeah. Absolutely loved it. It was, you know, it's a small muscle to begin with and it requires a lot of TLC, but we were playing around with some of those at the shop and had them in the room for 21 days, cleaned them up. The yield on them was terrible, but the product sure. was so amazing when it was yeah. done that, you know, as I said, we throw them on a little bit of cast iron there, mm-hmm. um, quickly sear them and away you go. That's that's a hidden gem yeah. there for sure. That sounds delicious. Is there anything else as we're wrapping up here talking about dry aging, you know, that you, chefs and, and operators, you know, that you think they should know that we didn't touch on? I think realistically, you're always going to be an advantage buying it off a distributor rather than dry aging it yourself. And of course, the reason for that is when I'm putting the product into my room, it's based off of my cost. When you're dry aging it into your cooler, there's a couple things for you to be aware of, right? You're buying it off of the distributor's sell price to your door. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is, you know, typically if that cooler is not strictly dedicated to dry aging, you're going to pick up other flavors from your cooler. And that could be, you know, the cardboard off the romaine lettuce or, you know, the moisture from the trickle of the fan or whatever it happens to be. So I would encourage people if they've got a local distributor that's or a butcher shop that's capable of of doing it for them, reach out, get to know their program a little bit. You're always welcome to reach out to us at Centennial and we can kind of help you through it as well. There's ultimately we're, a, as we said, a resource for the industry as well. So years ago, we played around and threw some strips and hang, hung them in our cooler. And yeah, we were not happy with the way they came out because there's so many other things in there and they, they were just funky. They didn't taste good. And we were like, yeah, we don't have the right setup for this. It's right. so important. You know, I have a, a good friend who had a restaurant for years and he had his own cooler. Uh, he did a lot of his own salumi and all, and, and he did it with blue lights and fans. And uh, I think he had hay bales and stuff in there just to get everything perfect. Amazing. And nobody was nobody was allowed in there except for him. Yeah. Because he, w- he would make sure that there was nothing on him that he was going to introduce. You know, he would change his shoes right before he went and all these right. steps. And it was it was incredible what he did. But he had yeah. the luxury of building this place from the ground up and built that into the system, right? Uh, So he he didn't need that refrigerator for anything else. No, I'm Um, sure the product was reflective of all his his care and his hard work when it came out. I mean, when that hit your plate, I'm sure it was spectacular. No doubt. Yeah, I think he was telling me the local uh, food police, as you'd call them, they didn't know what to make of it because they never had anybody do something like that. So they ultimately worked with him to create the rules and a program so then other people could follow that, you know, from a HACCP standpoint and so forth. So it's pretty cool stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Chris, there's a lot more I want to touch on regarding this. So let's pause right here and take a break. 
When we come back, we'll talk more about dry aging as well as ways premium beef programs can help operators. Listeners, you'll want to subscribe so you don't miss out when part two of this episode is available. To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats.